This is episode number 42 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual Number One Pod. That's Individual the Number One Pod. Hope you uh, heard the interview that we did with the former uh, CIA director, Michael Hayden, General Michael Hayden, in episode number 41. Uh, He struggled a little bit because he's recovering from a stroke, but got a lot of great comments about General Hayden coming back into the public uh, discussion and the things that he had to say, including his conclusion that America may not be able to survive a second term of Donald Trump. So check that episode out, episode number 41 of the Individual One podcast. In this episode, we have an interview that is equally as good, if not even better. It's with one of my best friends, a longtime friend from Louisville, Kentucky, where he is the congressman. He is the chairman, the Democratic chairman of the House Budget Committee, and his name is John Yarmuth. Congressman John Yarmuth, welcome back to the program. Thank you, John. Always good to be with you. Uh, It's great to talk to you. Uh, We've been trying to schedule this for a while, and uh, part of the reason why there was a little bit of delay was that, uh, frankly, you were having a bit of um, what sounded like Trump burnout to me, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you had a very odd way of, of handling uh, Trump burnout. You, you went to Ireland to go play golf at a Trump property, uh, Dunebeg. Uh, explain that all, what that's all about. Well, actually, the, the trip was planned before I had uh, <laughs> Trump burnout. Uh, we... Uh, normally go, I, I belong to Dunebeg, have uh, now for almost 15 years, and so well before Donald Trump bought it, and you know, you've, you've been there as well, and, and uh, we've played together. Uh, it's, um, it's a wonderful place. It's a gorgeous place, and it, was, it wasn't just about Trump burnout. It was, uh, I just got crazy sick of talking about elections, too, <laughs> because it's like with 24 candidates on our side and constant polling a year and a half before the election. It's just like, you know, I don't think anybody knows anything at this point, but everybody asks. So right. just wanted to get away from it for a while. No, I understand. And look, I, I fully appreciate it. And, and, and frankly, uh, it's possible this interview may burn you out further. So I apologize. <laughs> I, I apologize in advance if that's what happens. But but one other point on Dunebeg, which, by the way, I love. Uh, uh, Dunebeg is, is an awesome place, and I'm glad you went there. Uh, w- was there any scuttlebutt there about uh, how they're feeling about their owner at, at Dunebeg? Well, there was. Uh, it was interesting to talk to the people around the community, and it's not a very large community, but the people, you know, he was there just a couple weeks prior to that. He played golf at, uh, at his course, and his sons were bar hopping or pub hopping in the little town of Dunbeg. The, the community doesn't particularly care for the president, but they were very glad that he came because it meant a, a lot of revenue for the area. And, uh, and, and Dunebeg, of course, is, is the single largest employer of that it, a part of, of Ireland. So they do appreciate the economic stimulus that 
um, Trump is providing, although they don't particularly like his behavior as president. And how, how did you play, John? I played great. I hit the ball really well all, all, all week. Weather was beautiful. It was in the mid-60s all week. Very little, no, no, actually no rain, very little wind. And the Irish Open was at La Hinch, uh that weekend, which was um, which is a half hour up the road from Dune Bay. So uh, Kathy and I went into, into La Hinch and watched the uh, Irish Open one day and had a, had a good time. That's awesome. Wow. Uh, it's not too yeah. often that a golfer says, I played great. That, that's, I know. <laughs> you must have really played well. <laughs> All right. I did. I, I hit the ball terrific. I, did, uh, I, I still have a little pro- problem putting, but um, I was real happy with my ball striking. Well, that's awesome, uh, especially at your age. Uh, but... That's right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, lots to talk about in the news. And um, so let's talk about what's been most discussed over the last couple of days. Before we talk about the president's response to it, tell me from your perspective what the real story is about what the heck is going on in your Democratic Congressional Caucus between what I would refer to as the new guard or the squad, as some are referring to it, and the old guard. What is your view of what's really going on in that schism? Well, here's what I think is is happening. We have about two-thirds of our caucus. We have 234 Democrats, I think, now in the House. About two-thirds of the Democrats in the House have never been in the majority. So they're used to basically um, doing a lot of symbolic rhetorical things because we've never been able, since uh, 2010, been able to pass any legislation of our own. So that's one factor. And then of the new members, I think out of the 63 new freshman Democrats, 35 of them have never served in any public office before. So we've got a lot of people who are on a steep learning curve when it comes to actually running the House and governing and, and, um, and legislating. And so we've got that issue generally. And, and that issue is much broader than just the squad. All right, the squad is—they're basically the avatar for um, for a segment of the caucus that is real progressive, that really doesn't want to compromise, that thinks that because we run the house, that we're we're going to be able to get everything we want, and obviously we only control one third of the decision making process uh, in the government, the Senate and the presidency being in Republican hands. So, but that's not, and they would rather pass very, very extreme uh, legislation, not compromise, even though they know down deep that what what's going to end up, if anything, ultimately is enacted, is not going to be what they want. And so that's that's part of that's that's the bigger problem. And then you've got these four very high-profile new members who are very, very um, prominent on social media who have uh, established uh, a lot more uh, visibility and uh, and influence than your normal freshman members would, <laughs> to say the least. To say the least. And, and nobody quite knows how to handle it. And you saw that, you know, in, with Nancy Pelosi's comments to Maureen Dowd in, in that interview where she basically said they're just four people, they each have one vote. And I think that's really kind of minimizing the situation un, <laughs> um, 
irrationally because when you have four and a half tw- million Twitter followers as as uh, Ocasio Cortez has, you're a force. I mean, you command an awful lot of attention, and you have the opportunity to shape the way people think. And you also have, um, unfortunately, the the ability to probably wield out um, out over justified um, power. Well, and when, when you say that, what you really mean is overjustified justified uh, media coverage. And, right. and the media is at the heart of all this. And, John, frankly, what I think is happening as an outsider is that we have this, this uh, contradiction between celebrity and uh, legislative credibility. And, that, and, and the old guard still thinks that experience and legislative credibility is where the currency is. And the new guard uh, is realizing that we live in a world where celebrity is your currency, and that's all that matters. Is that a, is that? Do you think that's an accurate analysis of what's happening here? I think I think you put it much better than I did. Yeah, I, I, I think there's no question about that. So how do you? And, s- you know, when you look at the president, it's understandable why somebody would think that. Well, no, it's well. That's the world we live in now, John. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, 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 we. That's the currency. Currency. Your currency is your celebrity. Your, your Twitter followers, it's ridiculous, it's absurd, it's not productive, but it's a, and you and I have talked off the air before, this is a major problem for you guys, so how do you deal with it? What, what, what is your solution? Well, I'm not sure there is a, a solution that's obvious. Uh, you know, all I can say is we keep doing the work and then talk see what the result is. We just passed a bill the other day, the National Defense Authorization Act, and in order to do that, because we, ironically, the Republicans didn't cast one vote for it in the House, even though you know they always talk about being strongly for national defense, um, we passed a $733 billion appropriation. That's $17 billion more than last year, which was, and it's a, this is a record amount of spending on defense. The, they put an awful lot of very um, progressive policy provisions in the bill. For instance, um, they they have paid family leave for all federal employees. That was in the Authorization Act, um, a resolution that you couldn't uh, we couldn't use. Uh, we had to come to Congress. The administration would have to come to Congress to declare to go to war with Iran. A lot of stuff that the liberals wanted, and but that's all of that's going to disappear in conference. <laughs> but they were satisfied. You know, sort of that they they got they could talk about all the great policies in there. Well, they, you know, I approve of all those policies too, but they're not going to be in there when the when the bill comes. So what will end up happening is, if we can pass the conference report, whatever the conference report is, then the then the caucus will show what it was able to do in, in legislating. And uh, but if we don't, I mean, they could uh, progressives could sink the ultimate bill, and then it makes us look bad. So. Uh, we've got a challenge. There's no question about it. People want to compare this group to the Freedom Caucus, and in terms of their ability to influence the final product, the, the, the analogy is is very accurate. Uh, in terms of the goals, there's no question. It's very different, but um, the objectives of the the group. But they they have the same power that the Freedom Caucus did, and and uh, neither Speaker Boehner nor Speaker Ryan ever figured out how to handle them. 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a major problem. I think your analogy to the Freedom Caucus is is a decent one, although I think there's some differences. I, I mentioned mm-hmm. that a solution, and you said there is no obvious one, and I'm not suggesting this is a, a solution, but I am curious, how much did the president's tweets today, which were, I believe, racist, I'm sure you agree, uh, where oh, yeah. he, he basically tells the squad to go back from the countries they came from, even though three of the four were born here, and, uh, and they're all American citizens, how much does that tweet help you guys uh, heal that kind of a schism. In other words, does, does he help unite you, your caucus, on this issue? Oh, I think he helps unite us on a daily basis. Uh, but, you know, we still have the issue of, of what we ultimately do with him in the House as to whether we begin impeachment proceedings or not. And that, that schism is not going to be... Um, uh, there's not going to be unification on that for a while yet, I'm afraid. Well, let's talk about that, because right, so we've not spoken to you since the Mueller report came out. And, right. and um, give me, John, your short assessment of how the Mueller report compared to what you expected, especially after Bill Barr's uh, trailer that he put out that was uh, highly deceiving. How, how did the Mueller report, uh, what was the reality of it in comparison to what you expected? All right. In, in regards to um, in regard to Russian interference, which is volume one of the report, it, uh, the report pretty much is, is as it was represented. Uh, there's a little bit of difference. I mean, the report basically, the volume one mentions time after time after time, not that there wasn't any coordination with Russians, not that there wasn't any involvement with Russians, but they couldn't prove it. They couldn't make a case. Um, and they talk about it. Mueller talks about the report how you know there was evidence that they couldn't they couldn't get uh, there were people who lied there were witnesses who were unavailable to them and so forth but that's all fine uh, we, I think it would be would have been very difficult to prove a conspiracy anyway as to volume two which is the obstruction of justice the report was much more conclusive and damning than uh, certainly than than uh, Attorney General Barr indicated and. I think uh, certainly more damaging than most people understand. He goes through ten, actually eleven different acti- actions by the president, which were potentially uh, obstructive acts. In ten of the eleven, he conclusively finds that they that they they met all three criteria of a of a criminal obstruction of justice. One that there was an obstructive act. In some cases, it could have been firing an individual. In other cases, it could have been uh, asking people to change their story, and there's some of those. And, and secondly, there has to be a connection between the obstructive act and an ongoing proceeding, which there were in 10 of the 11 cases. And finally, there has to have been intent corrupt, a corrupt intent. And he goes through and, basically, and says, without really any equivocation, there, is, there was corrupt intent. In other words, the president intended to change, uh, to affect a, an ongoing proceeding. So when I read it, I said, this isn't even a close call. Um, he basically lays out 10 provable uh, acts of obstruction of justice on behalf of the president. And to me, anybody who reads that has to say, you cannot avoid impeaching him for that. All right. I want to take issue slightly with one thing you said, and I, I'm, I'm going to guess you're going to agree with me, actually, uh, okay. on, on volume one. 
I think that the, there's a massive difference between the claim that even Bill Barr has constantly recited, which was no collusion, and the issue of no proven conspiracy. Those are two totally different things that the, yes, the, the White House has purposely uh, uh, created a misperception about. Because uh, volume one, in my view proves all sorts of collusion. It just doesn't prove <laughs> a criminal conspiracy. Am I right about that? You're, you're totally right. Okay. All right. Um, you're totally right. All right. Now, here's another thing that you and I have not had a chance to talk about, but I, I am uh, chomping at the bit on this one, and I'm going to be fa- fascinated to hear your opinion on because uh, you mentioned that the 11 uh, potential episodes of obstruction of justice. I think that uh, there is a 12th that... Mueller could not have known about because the information was not uh, available to him when he wrote the report. And that's this. I believe that Bill Barr's uh, proactive and deceitful muting of the Mueller report proves that the firing of Jeff Sessions was clear obstruction of justice and probably the most blatant act of obstruction of justice and in retrospect it is unbelievable that especially people on your side when sessions got fired the day after the midterm election it was overshadowed by that bat crap crazy press conference that that trump put out there it is unbelievable that you guys were not raising bloody hell over the firing of Jess Sessions, because it is the firing of Jess Sessions that allows for the hiring of Bill Barr, and it is Bill Barr who cuts the legs off of the Mueller report for purely the partisan reasons. Firing your attorney general, which, which Trump has acknowledged he did because Sessions refused to recuse himself from the Russian investigation. Is that not obstruction of justice to an impeachable level? Well, I, I agree, and uh, of course... The, the report gets at that in, in other ways, because when the president directed uh, McGahn to fire <laughs> Sessions, then that's the same issue. Uh, but, um, yeah, there was, you're right. He did not make the direct charge of the, that the firing. The act of firing him was, was obstruction, even though clearly when you, if you attempt to remove him, even it's indirectly, so forcing McGahn to say Sessions needs to resign, you're 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 getting to the same right but my but my point my my point is we didn't know that Barr was a hack at that point right i mean there was there was it was theoretically possible that the Barr hiring was on the up and up the Barr hiring we now know was not on the up and up it was it was it was all part of a uh, of a conspiracy that's what this was this was Mm -hmm. a conspiracy to obstruct and and destroy and to mute the Mueller report and Sessions firing is the key to that. And I, I, I mean, it, it, and yet no one wants to talk about this. I, I, I certainly hope someone's going to ask Mueller if he ever testifies. It got delayed again uh, till, till next week. Right. But but to me, but the reason, John, the reason why I'm so incensed about this is not just because it was the key moment and that no one paid attention mm-hmm. to it. It's something the average person can understand. That, that our attorney general should not be fired and replaced with a hack in an effort to to mute an, an investigation of yourself. That is something people can get. And, and, and my, my biggest problem with the report is, first of all, no, people aren't going to read it. 
No one read it, other than right. right. No one, no one read it. There's there's very few, if any, smoking guns that the average person goes, oh wow, okay, that's wrong. You know, with Bill Clinton, as as trivial in retrospect as that impeachment hearing was in comparison to to uh, Trump's, it was understandable. People got it. Oh, he was asked whether he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. He lied under oath. He lied again in the grand jury. He obstructed justice with Betty Curry. I get it. it that <laughs> Right? So do you see where I'm going right. with this? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think you're, you're right about that, although in defending what I would see as maybe just in a, in a legal sense where there would be a problem with saying that the actual firing was obstruction of justice, um, you'd have to you'd have to somehow establish. I think that he knew that William Barr would be available to him, and that William Barr had already agreed to be the, the flag for him. Well, uh, but but we have the 19 page memo that Barr wrote uh, applying for the right, job. We do, we do, we do. I mean, that might be a, that might be a little tough case to prove before a jury. But clearly, I agree with you. Um, there's there's certainly enough connection there, connecting the dots that. Uh, it's certainly a good argument to make. I mean, it's just so frustrating to me. You know, there's so much more focus on the Trump Tower in New York meeting, which was bad, mm-hmm. but not nearly enough focus on the Trump Tower Moscow, which was the whole thing. I believe this right. whole thing was about Trump Tower Moscow. And yet I would venture to guess 80 percent of the American people have no idea that Trump was trying to get a, a Trump Tower built in Moscow during the campaign, lied about it, and then had his personal attorney lie to Congress about it in just <laughs> in just coincidentally. Just this is the most amazing part to me, John. Just coincidentally, Michael Cohen just happens to know the moron that he is that to, to pick January of 2016 as the incorrect date <laughs> when that thing ends, and that's not that's not suborning perjury on Trump's part. Oh, absolutely it is. <laughs> absolutely it all is. All right. Well, I mean, yeah. Okay. All right. So, so you have said, and look, John, you know, I obviously lobbied you on impeachment before you guys even right. took you did. the House. You did. I, I, you've been awesome on it. I, I appreciate it more than you know. Uh, you have said consistently, uh, your mantra is it's, it's not if, but when Trump will be impeached. Do you still believe that? I still believe that. I think, um, you know, right now there are 80 Democrats, right at 80, who have um, called for impeachment proceedings. I think once Mueller testifies, if they hand, if the Judiciary Committee handles the questioning correctly, I think that immediately goes to a majority of the caucus. And, and then I don't think leadership will have any, any alternative but to allow the committee to proceed. All right. Now, that's fascinating to me. And that's, uh, that's significant, if true. Uh, so let, just to be clear, what you're saying is Mueller testifies at that point, if it goes as it should, then you believe that there's political cover for over half of your caucus to say, well, look, I'm in favor of impeachment. Because right now we're on pace. I calculated it the other day, John, we're on pace uh, with the number of people in your caucus saying they're in favor of, of impeachment. We should be able to impeach him by the very end of his second term. That should be <laughs> right. th- that, that's about where we're headed uh, on that pace. Yeah. But, but you're saying that if Mueller's testimony goes as as it should, if you get over half your caucus, that's the signal to Nancy that she has to let this go. I think so. Yes, right. I think so. I, you know, I, and, and 
she has not said this to me, but I'm convinced that she knows exactly where this is headed and that she knows we're going to have to bring impeachment proceedings or initiate them. And she's, she's playing the timing to, to make sure there is enough agreement in the caucus to do it. Because the, the worst thing what could happen if, if we did it, if we initiate impeachment proceedings and then can't get right. even a majority of our own caucus to well, to no, that, no, well, look, I agree with that a hundred percent. If uh, in fact, yeah. for, I think it's a disaster if you don't actually get a majority of the house. Uh, I mean, yeah. so, yeah, exactly. so, so, I mean, I, I would be vehemently against impeachment if if you told me that you didn't think you could get a majority of the house, um, right. because that would be a, a total disaster. But let me play devil's advocate with you for a second, since since okay. you're saying. And this is this is another thing that has really incensed me, because um, I think Nancy is is playing a game. Uh, and but you know her a lot, obviously a lot better than I do. Um, but but here's where I'm coming from on this. Uh, to me, this delay has inherently uh, devalued, if not discredited, the entire argument for impeachment. Now, what I mean by that is this. Here's my analogy. Uh, if if you want to divorce your spouse and uh, the, the rationale for divorcing your spouse is they're abusing my kids uh, and they're abusive to me, right? You don't mm-hmm. let them stay in your house for several months. You don't let them take the kids on vacation. You don't let them go to the G20 and uh, negotiate with uh, all sorts of fire and leaders and tyrants, go to the DMZ because they're not really a danger, you, by, by, by delaying for months and months, because there's not going to be any new information. We have all the information, basically, that, that is going to be the basis for any impeachment inquiry. And yet, yet you're going to sit around for several months and do nothing. You've told me that your entire argument is a lie. Do you, do you not see that? The, the, the average person is going to go, wait a minute. There's nothing new here. Why, why didn't we impeach him months ago if he was such a danger to the republic? How do you beat that argument, John? Well, I mean, I understand how you could raise that argument. But again, your your argument to me way back, which was persuasive, was that uh, if you don't impeach the president based on his conduct, then impeachment means nothing. Right. And uh, you might as well eliminate it from the Constitution. Right. And I think that's right. And then the timing becomes irrelevant to me. Uh, I, I understand tactically and politically it may be the wrong strategy to wait, but the principle is the same. And, and uh, again, you convinced me once, and I stay convinced. That <laughs> I'm not, some well, point, though, to be clear, John, I'm not trying to unconvince you. Nothing has, nothing, <laughs> right. has, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. In fact, I feel more strongly about it now because of... So, because some things have happened since then uh, that, that are impeachable offenses, in my opinion. My point is that politically, it's, it, is, it is less effective to do it now than it would have been. Frankly, I think tactically you guys made a massive error in not immediately, once you took over, starting in, in an impeachment inquiry because because at that point you already had the Michael Cohen uh, campaign finance situation you already had emoluments clause violations you, there there was uh, there was certainly enough to at least begin that and that would have set the predicate that hey look we're not just talking about things that happened 
after we take over. But in, in the psychology of the, the population, they need a reason for why you're doing this. And, th- and therefore, anything, if you do it over, and frankly, I think you're now to the point now where even Mueller doesn't count because it's already been three freaking months or whatever it is. So, so they need, there needs to be a catalyst for why now. And if you had started this thing the moment you took over, that would have ended that problem. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think earlier would have been better, but here's here's the way I look at it, and from the electoral standpoint, there's not one Hillary Clinton voter in the United States who is going to vote for Donald Trump, regardless of what we do and when we do it on impeachment. And so I I'm, I just don't buy all this theory that some, this is somehow going to change the electoral calculation. Um, so many people. Uh, their their opinions are cemented, and then right. if you if you get the sixty six million votes, obviously the, the turnout will be somewhat different. But you get the sixty six million votes that Hillary got, and then you change two to three percent in four states, the election's over. And we've already changed that percentage in in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. So I just think uh, I just don't think there's going to be a significant impact on the election, and I think. Whenever you do it, when you have televised hearings where these charges are leveled against the president in public with the whole nation watching, I think I think that'll make a difference. So I'm, I'm not just I'm just not that concerned about the timing, even though I think you make a good case it would have been much better if we had um, if we had done it back in February or March. My last point on the timing, though, uh, mm-hmm. we we live in a, in a world of immediacy. And I think that uh, the power that Mueller uh, will have in his uh, testimony, assuming it actually finally does happen, uh, currently scheduled for Mm -hmm. a week and a half from now, um, that that power is going to be extremely muted. Because we live in a world where if Mueller had found something that was really earth shattering, then he would have immediately testified. That's the way the world works in this day and age. Instead, we've got this massive delay, and people have forgotten about it. John, you know I'm as passionate about this as anybody. I'm not, I'm not even that into Mueller's testimony anymore. I, I, mean, I, I, re, I mean, I'll watch it because I, you know, I'm a commentator. But I, the, I, I, don't, I think the air has gone totally out of the balloon because of the delay. Now, the reasons for the delay, I'm sure they're complicated. I, I don't know who's screwed up. I don't know how much Mueller has to do with it. But the, the idea that uh, putting Mueller on MSNBC and CNN, where people are already convinced of this, uh, you know, is, 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 that's going to change the world is a fantasy, John. We don't live in Watergate times anymore. In Watergate, as you know, th- those hearings were, were uh, on every... Uh, TV channel there was. There were only four TV channels, and th- three of them carried it live. I mean, we don't live in that world anymore. And, and, and so, I, yeah. I, you, you don't see this as a problem? Um, I know, I, I don't. I mean, I, 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 I take your point, and there's a lot of validity to it, but ultimately, if they, again, this is based on how they handle the hearing, but if, if you have Democrats saying, Mr. Mueller, when President Trump fired James Comey. Was there an obstructive act? He'll have to say yes. Was there a connection to an ongoing proceeding? Yes. Was there corrupt intent? Yes. If they do that with those 10 charges and and basically you got it cut and dried, yes, he committed obstruction of justice 10 times, I think that's going to have an impact. 
And I'll just retort by saying, uh, when you guys took over the house, he had already fired James Comey long before that. And right. uh, and that could have been the basis, in, if it was really that serious, which I believe it was, that could have been the basis for an impeachment inquiry. And and the yeah, fact no, that it, I agree with and, and the fact that it wasn't tells me that's a, that's a message to the public. This isn't that big of a deal. Uh, and and I and, and I and I fear that Nancy is slow walking this, knowing that the air goes out of the balloon, and that because uh, she does for whatever reason. Do you do you do you know why she doesn't want to impeach Donald Trump? Do you know why? I think she does want to. <laughs> so then why hasn't I it happened? She does want to. So then I what? think I, well, I think a couple things. One is she has uh, six committees, five or six committees, who are. Doing investigative work, and they, you know, they're taking their damn time about it, but they're doing it. And I don't think he, I don't think she wants to preempt them right now. And I think she is hopeful that other other issues will emerge from some of that those investigations that'll bolster the case. That's that's All right. what I think. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, out of respect for you, John, I'm gonna hold uh, Mike. Well, not that my conclusion makes a damn bit of difference, but I'm gonna hold uh, my conclusion and keep the faith because uh, you know I I am I I'm just somebody who doesn't trust people, as you know, and right. uh, and it just feels to me like uh, this is all a game, and that uh, in the end. And Trump's going to get away with this. And frankly, I'm not to your point. I'm not sure uh, impeaching him would have much uh, political impact uh, at all. In fact, I think there's an argument that not impeaching helps Trump by cementing the argument that there's nothing that unusual about his presidency. That, because that's a yeah. narrative. That's a narrative that's taking hold now, especially among people who are. Uh, you know, at least somewhat sympathetic to voting for Trump. And that is, well, the economy is good. We're not in a war. Uh, you know, things seem to be OK. He didn't get impeached. I mean, he, he must not. You know, the Mueller report was a big dud. Uh, he, this is all normal. Well, by, by impeaching him, you say this ain't normal, folks. Um, uh, and, 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 and like I said, I wish that would have been done uh, sooner. OK, um, let's, I agree totally. Right. I mean, God, the guy, the guy just used his Twitter account to promote the Trump trail of golf courses. Oh. You retweeted the commercial that's going to be airing on the British Open. Really? I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, well I, again, to me, uh, you know, th- those kind of issues should have been brought immediately because he's been doing that for, for almost three years now. But I hear you. I get right. it. All right. right. So let's right. talk about a couple things more generally Well, in the time that we have uh, with Congressman Yarmouth. Um <laughs> How fearful are you, John, that you guys are in the process of blowing this uh, reelection situation by, as I've referred to it, overplaying your hand, being seen as too nutty, uh, not just the candidates themselves, but but the, you know, the whole Nancy Pelosi is a racist uh, baloney that's blown up over the last couple of years. How concerned are, are you that that this idea that all you guys had to do was not be nuts and, and you're blowing it uh, could come to fruition? I'm not concerned now. Uh, if we were at the same place uh, eight months from now, I would be very concerned. But I think what you're going to see, uh, well, I think by the end of the year, the, the field of candidates is going to be no more than five or six. And then the focus will be on much more on the personalities involved. And uh, and I think the you know Nancy Pelosi will 
recede as an issue, and so will AOC, and so will a lot of this other nonsense, and there'll be much more focus on the people who actually have a chance to be president. So um, that's the way I look at it. I, I think, yeah, right now, if, if if we were talking about a November election, I'd be scared to death. <laughs> November of 19. Right. If we were talking about an election four months from now, I'd be scared to death. But uh, I think time will resolve a lot of this. Well, okay. You're more optimistic than I am, but I hear what you're saying. Um, all right. All right. Now, do you. I usually am. Now, it's true. Am. Well, and, and, it's, I'm usually, and I'm usually wrong. <laughs> but it's worked out a lot better for you than it has for me, John. So there's that. Um, you're the one spending your summer vacations at Dunebeg, and I'm, I, you know, I'm going to Disneyland. So, um, all right. So uh, here's. Okay. So you mentioned the presidential candidates. It, to me, it is as obvious as could be that there are really only five, maybe only four people who can win the Democratic nomination. They're, they're Biden, Warren, Harris, Buttigieg, and maybe Sanders. Do you agree that those five, that the, the nominee is almost a deadlock cinch to come from those five? Do you agree with that? I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and I actually think there's an argument that you could take Sanders out of there, and it's going to be one of the other four. Would you agree with that? I agree with that, too. Okay, so yeah. uh, of those uh, four or five who we just men- named, uh, is Joe Biden the most electable candidate against Donald Trump? I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I, I truly believe he is, and um, I, I think by a considerable margin right now. And I'm not focused just on polls. I think uh, just in terms of the the contrast, um, his his undeniable likability, uh, the contrast between his personality and, and Trump's, uh, forgetting issues, record, any of that stuff. I just think uh, he's head and shoulders in terms of, of marketability over over Elizabeth and, and Kamala and Buttigieg uh, and certainly Bernie. All right. Now, you and I are lockstep on that. I have been incredibly outspoken on this issue, written about it, appeared on the Young Turks and got uh, crushed uh, on that show, trying to convince them that uh, Joe Biden was the most uh, electable candidate. But does does your party, does your party, not the progressive wing, not those in Congress, does your party care enough about electability? And do they understand that Biden is by far the most electable against Trump? I'm not sure about the second part. I'm sure about the first part. I, I think the, the party is much more concerned about beating Donald Trump than any particular policy um, prior, priorities. Um, I'm convinced of that. And, you know, that's not true of probably some of our congressional caucus, but I think in terms of Democrats throughout the country, uh, I think it's absolutely true. That's all I hear from people back in Louisville is, they're not even thinking about policy. They just want to get rid of this guy. So how do we convince them? And, and this is part of what is so frustrating about Trump. I believe that Trump benefits from a couple of things. I believe that he has broken you guys uh, in a way that, that causes you to, to exhibit uh, some some qualities that appear to be nutty to average people and it's not and i'm not necessarily denigrating you for that it's understandable mm-hmm. i mean he he, he he drives me nuts too uh, but mm-hmm. i but i think that works in his favor but i also think for instance let me give you this example his victory in 2016 in public perception broke polling it shouldn't have because the polls weren't that far off but it right. in the public perception it broke polling so therefore 
making the argument in 2020, look at the polls, Joe Biden crushes Donald Trump in Pennsylvania. People don't care because they don't think the polls are right. So how do we convince them that that we are correct about this, John? Well, actually, I think maybe it's better that people don't think the polls are right. (laughs) Uh, You know, we we have a I think we have a president because nobody. Well, a lot of people didn't think they needed to vote because now, they I, couldn't win. You're we talking about a, you're talking about a general election, John. I agree with you. I get where you're where you're going with that. I'm talking about yeah. but, but about you picking your nominee How, because because oh. that's the that's the problem here. I mean, this is going to be the ultimate uh, choice for you guys between you know somebody who makes your heart go pitter patter a little bit more. You know, you the brain versus the heart. You know, the brain says Joe Biden, the heart says you know Warren or or Harris or Buttigieg or somebody like that. I mean, so so how, how do we get uh, your your side to think with their head when the polling no longer matters to a lot of people? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's, why, that's why, you know, I, when I said at the outset and said to you a couple of weeks ago, I'm just I don't enjoy talking about right. this because no, I, I think I think the entire political paradigm is changing in front of our eyes. I think the electorate's going to be very different. I think the the motivation factor is going to be huge next year. Um, you know, you're not going to have hundreds of thousands of black voters in Michigan and and Milwaukee and other places stay home. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to have that next year. Right. You're going to have a whole bunch of new millennials that are that are going to be in the equation who are going to vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. We saw in Louisville in last year's election, the midterms, not just at the congressional level, but we were winning winning legislative seats in parts of of Jefferson County, my my district, where we never elect a Republican. And we we flipped three seats in eastern Jefferson County last year. We were winning Metro Council seats. Why? Because women in the suburbs are fed up with Republicans. And I don't think that's going to change between now and next year. So again, I just think the, I just think we forget about 2016. I don't think it's relevant except for the fact that we put in office somebody who has raised the anxiety level of every American to kind of intolerable. uh, And look, and and John, there's an argument to be made for that, but I'm just I'm just concerned that uh, I don't know how Biden gets through a 16 game NFL season uh, with an with no offensive line uh, because the media is not going to protect him. I mean, in all seriousness, the the media is invested against him. I mean, the media has no incentive for Joe Biden to be the Democratic nominee. None. None, because uh, yeah. they want drama in the primaries. They want, you know, they don't want him to be president. He'd be a boring president for them in comparison to Trump. Uh, he would probably beat Trump. I think subconsciously they, they want or need Trump to be reelected. I mean, do you do you see that media dynamic in the same way I do? Uh, so, yeah, I think certainly right now when um, they want a, they want a much more interesting race in the primaries and when you have 24 candidates you can't have that and so the 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 i think the motivation is definitely to go after Biden and to elevate the other candidates i think when it gets down to this this five five or so people five or four then i think it's going to be it's going to be a little bit different but clearly Elizabeth Warren's always going to get a lot of media attention. I think Kamala will too. To be honest, I don't think. I mean, guys, I think Kamala is very talented. I think she's a, a a very powerful figure, but I don't think she's all that interesting in a media sense either. So, 
uh, you know, I'm not sure that you know, the only one who has that to me that has that uh, real appeal is Buttigieg, mm-hmm. who I think has has a lot of media appeal. Uh, but I don't think the others do, so I'm not sure that yeah. they can they can real the media can really elevate some of these other people right. to superstar status because I don't think they they're that type of people. Well, so I mean, so, so you think Biden might survive the the nominating process? You think he might? I be think the- he might. Yeah, I think he I think he has a good chance to survive it. All right, a couple other real quick questions, John. Um, mm-hmm. so, obviously, uh, in politics news this week. Uh, your good friend Mitch McConnell, I say that facetiously, uh, <laughs> yeah. a longtime senator from Kentucky. Uh, he now has a Democratic opponent, Amy McGrath. Uh, I thought her initial uh, um, uh, outlay with her video was pretty decent. Uh, you you had some problems with it, and then she really stepped in it over the issue of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I am uh, just baffled. Uh, how is it, how, John? How how is it that you could decide to run against Mitch McConnell and not be sure of whether or not you would vote would have voted for Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court? How is that possible? I'm, I I don't know how it's possible, particularly because in 2018 she said she would not have voted for him. I mean, she's already been on the record on that that issue. So I I just. I, to me, it was like you know whether it was a brain fart or something else. I don't, I don't know, but uh, clearly it uh, it looked horrible. And you know, she walked it back two hours later, but uh, sounded like it made her sound like she had never thought about the whole issue until that day, which is clearly she had. And uh, yeah, it's just a just a horrible mistake. And I, you know, I think she's been chastened by it. I hope she doesn't make any more because she can't afford many mistakes like that. Yeah, I, I I think it might be devastating uh, to her. I mean, because I, I mean McConnell can you? I mean that it, it, she literally figured out a way to piss off every single voter. Uh, I mean, which is hard to do. I mean, that's hard to do. But um, I mean, she gave the worst possible answer, and then she had to uh, say, "Oops, uh, I I made a mistake on the, on what would have been the biggest decision if she was in the Senate. It would have been the biggest decision maybe of her career." Uh, and and uh, and as you said, she made it sound like she never even thought about it. Now you have said that maybe a a primary challenge uh, would be a good thing for her. I tried in vain to convince you to run against McConnell because that would have been a, a hell of a, of a race. Uh, is anyone else suggesting that maybe you give her a, a primary challenge, John? Suggesting that I do it? Yeah. Oh, I get asked, I get asked about it every day. <laughs> so, uh, but. No, I have I have no interest in being in the Senate. I have no interest in running statewide, and um, it's just not something that's on my agenda. I got a, a grandson on the way. I'm um, right. You know, I don't. Uh, I'm not. The last thing I w- would want to do is say, okay, in nineteen. I mean, in twenty seventy. What would it be? Twenty seventy six. <laughs> that I'd still be sitting in the, in, in Congress. I I don't really have that. Okay. Uh, that ambition, but uh, there are a couple people who are still thinking about the race. Matt Jones, who uh, comes from your milieu, the is a radio talk show host, uh, who has a big statewide following, the majority of which are are more conservative Republican voters. So he has the opportunity; would have the opportunity to convert Republican votes. Probably can't win a Democratic primary against Amy, but might have a better shot in the general. And then Rocky Atkins, who's the minority leader of the uh, Kentucky House, who finished a strong second in the uh, 
in the Democratic gubernatorial primary this, this May, carried 67 out of 120 counties, uh, and is, is, very, is a very likable um, politician. He's thinking about it as well. Um, you know, you can always go back and forth whether, it's a, whether a primary is helpful or not. The one thing I said is whoever would come out of a primary, uh, and I presume Amy would actually win the primary, but would be a sharper candidate. And with the money that's out there waiting to finance the opponent of Mitch McConnell, uh, I don't think using resources in a primary would be a problem. Fair enough. Um, real quick, uh, the, there was a, a sanctioned Russian oligarch who uh, has been spending, uh, I think it's $200 million on a new Kentucky plant. Now, a lot of people have, have been looking at this and going, wow, uh, this seems awfully coincidental, uh, considering uh, the support uh, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and uh, Ron Paul have had for Donald Trump and their mitigation of the Russian investigation. Do you see that as coincidental? Is this just smoke? Is there some fire? What, what do you make of that? Well, um, I, first of all, it, the whole project from day one disturbed me. It was very suspicious. This is a, a, a guy... You know, Kentucky, the, uh, the Governor Bevin invested $15 million of, of state money to buy an interest in what is supposed to be a $2 billion project. The project has no financing. Basically, the $15 million that Kentucky put up is all there is. So I, I don't know that this thing's ever going to get off the ground. When I heard about Deripaska's uh, potential investment, I thought, I said, look at Bevin as opposed to Mitch because, and I know, they they gave money. They got funneled money into Mitch's uh, political accounts. Same people, but Bevin's the one who has the real influence with Trump, and that's what I thought. This that my first thought was Bevin got Trump to get his Russian people to invest in this project, and of course they they needed a waiver of sanctions in order to get it done, which Trump would have had to have given him. That's why my suspicions. Uh, point me toward Bevin and not McConnell on this one. Interesting. All right. And uh, we'll ask one policy question, because that's really all that uh, we warrant uh, in this day and age where (laughs) policy doesn't matter. You're the uh, chairman of the House Budget Committee, and it appears as if we're going to we're going to breach the uh, debt limit sooner than expected. Uh, How do you see that whole situation going down? Are we going to see another crisis or what's your analysis of that? Well, in a rational world, this would be dealt with in the next two weeks, and it, and it still may be. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and, and uh, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin have, are talking on a, almost on a daily basis. They have, to my way of thinking, uh, quite properly marginalized um, Mick Mulvaney in these discussions, the president's chief of staff, because Mick, uh, and Mick's a friend of mine, but he, he wants to take this to the very limit. He, he's not afraid to uh, provoke a government shutdown. Yeah, I don't think he really cares about the, the faith, the full faith and credit of the United States. He uh, he doesn't approve of the, the. He doesn't want to raise the debt ceiling, but he wants to use it as leverage uh, on other budgetary matters. So he wants to take it to the brink, which would be September 30th. I don't think that's going to be possible. Uh, the problem here is if this were just the Senate and the House negotiating. This would be done in five minutes. It's not a difficult thing with not just the debt ceiling, but also the budget, uh, the budget caps that we uh, have a problem with. Uh, unfortunately, this is basically a five-way negotiation now. It's House, Senate, Trump, 
Mnuchin and Mulvaney. And Trump, Mnuchin, and Mulvaney are not necessarily on the same page. Hmm. And that makes it very, very difficult. Wow. All right. Uh, so basically, it's going to be another cluster. Um, all right. Yeah. And, and finally, last thing, John, uh, you, you mentioned that you're about to be a grandfather. You're going to have a grandson on the way. Uh, your son, Aaron, is going to have a, a child with his new wife. And uh, you also just experienced your your 50th reunion at Yale, which must have been a heck of an event, considering, uh, you know, yeah. 1969 was quite a year uh, to have graduated from, from Yale. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you must be going through uh, quite a bit of, of analysis of, of your life and where you are and, and where things are going. Uh, what, what, what's, what's been going through your head uh, with, after, you know, with, with that reunion in the rearview mirror and, and being a grandfather coming up soon? Well, obviously, any any life changes like a grandchild. They make you think about all sorts of things. And when you get to my age, 71, you know, you've got issues of lifespan, and, and those things are constantly on your mind. And what are you going to do for to make sure your family uh, uh, is as secure as you can uh, make them? But to be honest, what I think about on a daily basis is uh, how fast the world is going to change and that we are totally – ill-equipped for the change that's about to hit us. We had the chief technology officer from Microsoft in Louisville a few weeks ago, and she said that over the next 10 years, we will experience, we being society, will experience 250 years worth of change. Now, even if she's 50% wrong, that's a hell of a lot of change. That's over 100 years of change over the next 10 years. And it's everything from mostly, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of these things that are going to change virtually every every way we exist. And I think about my grandson and the idea that I have any notion of what his life will be like is absolutely bizarre. I mean, there's no way to tell. You know, we know he'll never have a driver's license because nobody's going to have nobody's going to be driving in 16 years. But beyond that. You know, that, that his body will be full of all sorts of electronics, and it's it's just bizarre. So I think about this a lot, and and I worry that, and it's not necessarily all, most even mostly a government responsibility to prepare society for it, but I'm wondering whether we're focused on the right things uh, as, on a daily basis in government uh, when the world's about to change so radically. Wow. Uh, profound stuff, John. And as always, uh, thank you so much for your time and your honesty. The, the last uh, honest man in Congress, uh, Congressman uh, John Yarmouth. Always great to talk to you. And, uh, great to talk with you. And we'll obviously keep in touch. Hit him straight, John. Thank you, John. You too. Take care. Always great to talk to uh, to John. Uh, he's so busy these days that uh, most of our uh, personal conversations are done uh, via podcasts, <laughs> although we still talk occasionally off the air and text uh, quite a bit. I, I guess the most uh, newsworthy thing that he said there was that he still believes that Donald Trump is going to be impeached and that Nancy Pelosi is in favor of this and that they just need over half of their caucus to come out in favor of it. I, I am not convinced of that. I am I'm not convinced that that is what's really going to happen. I, I am not as trusting of Nancy Pelosi as uh, as John Yarmouth is, although he knows her obviously exponentially better than I do. Nancy likes John Yarmouth. And so I take John at his word there. But it just feels to me like she is slow walking this, knowing that effectively she is preventing it from happening, that when you delay it on the calendar and you delay it as far as you can from the events that provoke the potential impeachment, 
that you take the air out of that balloon, as I said uh, during the interview. Uh, I hope that's not the case. Uh, but, you know, Mueller's testimony being pushed back yet another week. It was supposed to happen this coming week. Now it's scheduled for the 24th. Uh, it's certainly consistent with that. I mean, it's, it is absurd. It is absolutely absurd that uh, Robert Mueller has not testified yet. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, I mean the, the Mueller report came out what, almost four months ago at this point. I, I, get it done. Get it done. This plays right into Trump's hands. Correct. Uh, because the uh, average person has moved on. He, they have moved on from the entire Mueller investigation. I love the poorly educated. And so uh, I, I do think that John, and I referenced that in the interview, is a bit not just overly optimistic. I think he's borderline delusional about the impact that Mueller's testimony could theoretically have. And I do believe that they made their critical mistake in not starting impeachment proceedings immediately after taking over, because that would have set the predicate that everything the president has done since he started in office two years prior to that was not everything. But I mean, there were impeachable offenses within that two year period, because people will look at this logically and go, well, why are you impeaching him now? What did he do now? What's new? And the Mueller report is not new. It's no longer new. And so therefore, how could it provoke an impeachment of the president, the president of the United States. Uh, not that there aren't, I mean, constantly new reasons to impeach the president of the United States. Uh, there's a lot of news going on this weekend. There's those, these supposed ICE raids. Not that these are impeachable. I'm in favor of the ICE raids. However, they're totally overblown. I mean, this is an incredibly small number of people. It's done for effect on Trump's part to show his base that he is fighting for them. And frankly, I think it's almost more intended for liberals to overplay their hand, to go nuts, to, to raise a Mexican flag in Aurora, Colorado. I mean, it, this works directly into Trump's hands, folks. I, I mean, it, it is amazing to me, and I, we referenced it in the interview with John, that Democrats just needed to not be nuts and not scare people, and they can't do it. And I don't know whether Trump's smart enough to realize this, or whether he's just lucky, but in provoking the Democrats in the way that he has and liberals the way that he has into doing nutty things like taking down the American flag and raising a Mexican flag in Aurora, Colorado, in protest of the the law being enforced, it works towards Trump's favor. I used an analogy with John about divorce. This is the analogy I'll use with regard to Democrats and Trump. It's kind of like a custody battle, to use kids again. Where Trump is the, is the male, and he somehow got custody of the kids. In a weird fluke, right? The 2016 election. He gets, he gets custody of the kids. And the, the female, the wife, uh, the Democrats, are trying to get custody back. Because they don't think that Trump is a fit father. And they have a strong case. But Trump, being Trump, is driving the wife crazy by underhanded tactics and doing things that push their buttons. He knows how to push their buttons better than anybody. And they go nuts. And in the process of going nuts, they show the judge, meaning the electorate, that they might not be worthy parents. And so where does the custody go? It stays with the guy, with the husband, with the father. That's what's happening here. And it's not fair it's not just it's not right but it, it, the democrats are terrible at discipline they always overplay their hand 
and they they are showing a lot of America that's going to decide this election that they're crazy. And that, my gosh, here in Los Angeles, the media coverage of these ICE raids, the, the media, there's no difference. There's, in fact, the only difference between the media coverage of the ICE raids and attorneys providing guidance for how to avoid the ICE, raid, the, the ICE raids is that the media coverage is free. Now, there's probably some lawyers that are doing it pro bono, but the media is acting like the attorney, the immigration attorney, for illegal aliens. And this is going to be an incredibly small number of people in comparison to the overall population of illegal immigrants, especially here in Southern California. It's all done for show, and I believe in most ways it's going to work to Trump's favor. I want to mention that I wrote a column that's not related to any of this a couple days ago about Trump's most ridiculous and latest comments about free speech where he shows he does not understand the concept of free speech correct he does not understand the first amendment he at a white house event for these crazy nut jobs who support him online that are being called conservative influencers i don't that's the nicest thing you can possibly say about them they're sewer dwellers they're just the scum of the earth they have no business being in the white house but he invited them to elevate them because they support him and that's the most important thing you can do in life in his world well uh he at this event actually said that you shouldn't be allowed to take a good thing and say bad things about it that's dangerous speech that's not free speech and of course his cult who doesn't understand the concept of free speech, doesn't understand the First Amendment, and it is a First Amendment issue when the president says it at the White House behind American flags and behind the presidential seal. They don't care because he's fighting their enemies. At least they think that he is. I love the poorly educated. It's outrageous. And no conservative commentators will say anything about it. Not Mark Levin, who's got a book out called uh, Unfreedom of the Press. This is a big issue for him as a supposed constitutional conservative. He doesn't give a shit because he doesn't want to piss off any of the cult. My old friend Glenn Beck, uh, he's in the same boat. Uh, John Ziegler, I I think he's fantastic. What What a interesting mind he has. As far as I can tell, he said nothing about Trump's outrageous comments on free speech. And he's supposed to be a constitutional conservative. It's amazing how much has been sold out and given up with regard to principle, all to out of fear of pissing off the cult of a liberal con man. And I wrote a column about this. You can find it at our Twitter handle, at individual, the number one uh, pod. Uh, so, look, there's, there's all sorts of things going on. We, we, we were able to deal with most of it in the interview with John Yarmouth. Uh, as far as the percentages of whether or not uh, Trump stays in office for his first term and whether or not he gets reelected, I am going to j- adjust those slightly. Uh, I am not as convinced as John is that there'll even be an impeachment. Uh, that doesn't mean he would be removed anyway, but I'm going to notch down that percentage just to 3% with the delay of Mueller's testimony a week till the 24th. And I'm going to nudge up uh, Trump's reelection number back up to 52%, largely because of the general insanity on the left, although I do think that Trump uh, hurt himself and helped Democrats in United with that in uniting with that absurd tweet today where he told the members of the squad, the four progressive female members of the Democratic caucus led by AOC, uh, that uh, they should go back to where they came from, even though three of them 
are American. They were born in America. All four are American citizens. It's absurd. It's wrong. I believe it's racist, especially when you combine it with all the other things of, of a highly uh, racist, questionable uh, character that, that Trump has said in the past. When you put it all together, it's obvious what he meant, or at least what he wanted his base to take it as, because frankly, they're racist too. And I never believed that. Until recently, until the last couple of years, I never believed that it was racism that was holding the Republican Party and the conservative movement together. But now, especially after today's tweet by uh, Donald Trump and series of tweets uh, on this subject by Donald Trump, it is very clear that that's the case. So that's not going to help him. It's going to actually help unite the Democratic Party. It'll mitigate some of this damage that the internal schism between AOC and Nancy Pelosi is causing, which we led off our interview with John Yarmouth talking about. But I still believe that by a very small margin, Donald Trump, as of today, is a favorite to be reelected as president of the United States. On that happy note, that'll do it for this edition of the Individual One podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. And until next time, which will be a Wednesday, early afternoon, Los Angeles time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.